you turn with me to the passage on which today's teaching will be based, it comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And this is God's word. Now, Ephesians is about what God says about the church. And this is very important for us, even as Metro continues to to grow and we get more established as a church. And and we've been looking at chapter 1. Last week we began, we kicked off the series, and we said that verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence in the Greek, just one long run-on sentence, very rich, very full, and so we're going to have to take some time to unpack it. And and today we're going to begin with verse 3. Praise be to God, uh, the Father, uh, to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us, that's the past tense, who blessed us in the heavenly realms with what? He says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, this text, what is it saying? It's saying that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing there is. That means that everything your heart needs, everything your heart and soul needs and longs for, you already have it in Christ. What does that mean? Three things. Three things today we're going to look at. One, the why to the what. Lastly, how do you know? One, why do we have it? Two, what is it? What is every spiritual blessing? Lastly, how do you know you have it? The why, the what, the how you know. First, we're going to look at why do we have it? Now, if you look closely, there is a series of phrases that all mean the same thing. It's scattered all through this text. The Apostle Paul says it over and over and over again. Verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 6, in the one he loves. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 9, right, we're going to kind of go off script a little. He says, in Christ. Verse 11, in him. Verse 13, in Christ. Over and over, one long run-on sentence, Paul is trying to drill into us over and over again to be a Christian. It doesn't mean to just obey Jesus as your king. To be a Christian, it doesn't mean just believing in him as your savior. When you become a Christian, the text says very clearly over and over that we are placed, we are found in him. Union. We are united with Christ. What does that mean? Romans chapter 6, the apostle Paul writes this, for if we have been united with him, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Union means oneness. That means what happens to Jesus happens to you. 
That means what Jesus did, you did. What Jesus deserved, you deserved. That means his power becomes your power. His wisdom, your wisdom. His character, your character. His peace, your peace. Every spiritual blessing. And that means several things. I'm going to talk about two of them. Several things. One, that's a legal union. Now, my favorite book is Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Remember Elizabeth Bennett, one of the greatest figures in, in uh, that, that era of fiction. Elizabeth Bennett, is she wealthy? No, she's not wealthy. But Darcy, Mr. Darcy makes 10000 a year. In today's uh, terms, that's, that's over a million, almost a million and a half dollars a year, right? Uh, when they get married, what happens? Is Elizabeth Bennett poor? No. There's this legal union, and because of that legal union, Darcy's wealth becomes her wealth. What Darcy earned, now she receives. Why? The legal union. And we have been united with Jesus like this in his death and resurrection. What does that mean? Because of this union, on one hand, the penalty that Jesus paid for our sins, that's as if we paid it. We paid that penalty. On the cross, we died with him. And the freedom that he earned becomes ours. On the other hand, what that means is we are united in his resurrection. That means, remember, the resurrection of Jesus was his vindication. The resurrection of Jesus was his victory. That means that when Jesus won, we won. When Jesus rose, we rise. We just receive this. It doesn't take any work to receive this. Uh, there's this legal union, but on the other hand, number two, that union is organic. That means that the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, God himself enters in. God lives in you. The Holy Spirit enters in. That means that your old self dies. Your old self ceases to be just who you are, what defines you. He dies. And now you have this whole new life, life on a whole new level. When Jesus died, you died. The debt has been paid. The power of sin now has been broken. Before, you were ruled by sin. Now that power is broken. That means that now you have the power and the freedom to become who you are designed to be. That's what Christian freedom is. That's what Christian liberty is. You now have the power to live and to become who you were designed to be. That means that one day, well, number one, it means that you have real power to change, tremendous power to change, and it gets better than that. One day, you will be perfected. What God is doing in you right now will birth you into perfection and glory. That's what the meaning of, that's what glorification is. That means that one day you're going to live a sin-free life. You cannot sin anymore. That means one day you will live a sickness-free life. You will never get sick again. You will live a tear-free life. You will never cry again. God will wipe away your tears. One day you will live a suffering-free life. How do you get over guilt? How do you get over your shame? How do you have the power to stop working to earn acceptance from other people? How do you get over your fears? The Apostle Paul is saying this. In yourself, you are poor, you are bankrupt. Like Lizzie Bennett. 
you are bankrupt. But in Him, because you are in Him, because you are in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. That's why we are in Him. Now, second point is, what is it? What is every spiritual blessing? Because it's an all-encompassing word, and Paul intends it to be an all-encompassing word. The Apostle Paul runs on and says, you have every spiritual blessing, and he starts to lay that out. Today, we're going to focus on two of those things. It's one blessing, every spiritual blessing, right? And we're going to focus on two of them. Verse 5 and 6, we are adopted as his sons in the one he loves. And verses 7 to 8, in him we have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he pours out and he just lavishes on us. So we're going to focus on adoption and redemption. What is adoption? Adoption means this. It means that through Jesus, God is not just your king. God is not just your savior, but he's your father. That's what it means. When the disciples ask Jesus, how do you pray? How are we to pray? Jesus says, well, here's how you're going to pray. And how does he begin? He says, our king? No. Our savior? No. He says, I want you to begin with our father. That's an amazing thing. You know, in the Muslim religion, in Islam, there are 400 words to describe God. Not one of them refer to God as father. Disciples are asking Jesus, how do you pray? He says, I want you to begin by praying our Father. Now think about this. This is the Father. This is God. The Shekinah glory of God. This is true glory. This is not just one power. This is power with a capital P. This is not just a king. This is the king. This is not just a creator, a creator. This is the creator. And he is your Father. What are the implications of this? Several things. One, That means you have access. Imagine your father holds a very, very high office. Everyone, everyone else, in order to try to see this man, there's protocol. You can't just say, hey, uh, can we get together tomorrow? You can't do that. You got to schedule these things weeks in advance. You got to go through this process. You got to get in line, but you, what do you do? You just barge in. When you're a child, this is, uh, if you look into uh, pictures in the 60s, there's this picture of John F. Kennedy when he was president. President Kennedy, uh, the very famous picture, he's working, he's meeting with all these dignitaries, but underneath his desk, his child is hiding, and the photographer catches that, that moment. Because what is a son? He can just barge in. And he barges into the open arms of his father no matter how high he is because we're not just talking about a high office here. This is God. This is the king of the universe. No one has this kind of access to God except who? His son, Jesus. And now you are a son. You have that access. Jesus says, I am the gate. That's what he says, access. Number two, access gives you what? intimacy, right? Because the word access, that's the root word for the word acceptance. Real access means you have intimacy. Why? Because in a sense, think about this. Right now, everything that you in this room, everything that you right now are working for, you're really working for acceptance. 
you're really working for approval. You're working to know your worth. This is a very big city, one of the biggest in the country. And uh, Philadelphia is a very big city, and so it's easy to see that the, the top reasons why we are all here so tired right now. Why? One, we need the approval of our boss, our colleagues, professional acceptance. We need the approval of our children and our families, filial acceptance, right? Number three, we need the approval of our spouse or a significant other, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, romantic love, romantic acceptance. Number four, we need the approval of society. We need the approval of our friends, our neighbors, social acceptance. So to have access, it's not just a right. It's not an entitlement. It's, not a, it's a privilege. But it's more than that. It's relational. Jesus says in Matthew, there's this passage, he says, many people... Well, one day, on that day, the day of judgment, Jesus said, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you? Didn't we do that for you? Didn't we cry out for you? And to them, Jesus says what? Depart from me. I never knew you. And that word know connotes, it's not just like, hey, I, knew, I, never, I didn't realize you existed. That's not what he was saying. He's saying, I never, lo- I never was intimate with you. We never had a relationship. There's no intimacy The psalmists, 150 psalms in the Bible, the psalmists say, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. Adoption means access and delight, intimacy. The third thing it means is status. Paul says in verse 5, you are adopted as sons. He doesn't say in the actual Greek, you are adopted as sons and daughters. That would actually cheapen the word that he's trying to use. Now, is Paul being chauvinistic? Is this just kind of a a product of its culture? Why isn't there any gender-neutral languages? A lot of Bibles are being retranslated to use gender-friendly or gender-neutral language. But if you look at this, in ancient times, Paul distinctly uses in the Greek the word sons. Why? Because in ancient times, daughters, women, they had no place in society. They had no status. So if Paul were to say, you were adopted as sons and daughters, people would have been confused. What are you talking about? So what Paul is saying is this. Jesus Christ is the son. Jesus Christ is an heir. And so in Christ, whether you are a male or a female, whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are high in social standing or low, no matter what your status, whether you are highly educated or not educated at all, you can be a son. You can be an heir. That's an amazing thing. Women and men, co-heirs, do you know that when the church first started, women flocked to the church. Why? Because they had access. They've discovered delight, intimacy with God. They have a place. The church was one of the first places. The church was considered incredibly liberal, incredibly progressive in those ancient times. Why? Because whereas all the other uh, societies said, uh, there was a law, for instance, in the Roman culture, that if you were widowed, you had three years to remarry, or else you would cease to be a citizen of the greatest empire to date. And to be able to, to be cut off from citizenship That means that a lot of privileges, a lot of rights, a lot of entitlements will be taken away. 
no more welfare, and you are a widow. What did the church say? We want to allow women. We want to uphold the dignity of women. And so if a widow, we're going to take care of these widows so they don't feel the pressure to have to remarry just to make a living. You see that? Women flock to the church. Orphans flock to the church. The dispossessed flock to the church. Everyone can be a son. That means you have full privilege. You read that in the call to worship. We have the rights of sons. Lastly, uh, fourth, it means we have a place. We belong. Why? Now think about this. If you're a hired hand, if you're an employee and you mess up really badly, or uh, you're unfaithful in your role, or you complain a lot in your role, what happens? You stop being a hired hand. You stop being an employee. You lose your job. There's no job security. There's no security. By the way, in today's society, in today's economy, if, even if you work hard, I mean, if you work, you understand this, even if you work hard, there is no real security in today's society, right? In today's labor market. But if you're a child, no matter how much you screw up, no matter how unfaithful you are, no matter how much you complain, you never stop being a child. You never lose your place. And so what Paul's saying here is what? God is not your employer. God is not your boss. God is your father. You are secure because you are bound up in his heart. You are bound up in his love. So you have access, you have intimacy, you have status, you have a place. Lastly, it means you have God's presence. Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. That's what Jesus says. Because you have a father, because God is your father, his presence indwelling, his presence always with you, molding you, shaping you, disciplining you. Fathers, what do they do? They discipline their children. The discipline is so that he's saying, hey, you are not being made in the likeness of, a, of my son, what my son should be. I'm going to mold you into the likeness of my son. Bad things are going to happen. You're going to cry a lot. You're going to suffer in your lifetime. Is it because God is punishing you? No, he's your father. But this is God. This is the king of the universe. So what he's doing, because he's present in your life, he is taking every brokenness in your life and he's weaving it into your life and he's turning it into something that disciplines you and matures you. It's like taking a lump of coal, placing it under extreme pressure, and what comes out? A diamond. The pearl of great price. Jesus, his son. So adoption means you have access to God. Adoption means you have intimacy with God. You delight in God. He delights in you. Adoption means you have status. You've, you're an heir. You're a, we're co-heirs. Adoption means you belong. You belong. You will always have a place. Adoption means God is always with you. Taking your suffering, taking the brokenness in your life, even in yourself, using even your own sin as a way of turning you into more and more the likeness of his son. That's adoption. The second thing we said about this, verse 7, Paul says, in him 
We have redemption. Redemption in Christ. The forgiveness of sins. Now, what is that? On one hand, redemption, it's a payment. But it's actually more than that. The actual Greek word used here is the word ransom. Now, when you hear the word ransom for the word redemption, you're like, oh, it makes more sense. What is ransom? I'm going to tell you what ransom is. I'm going to, give, I'm going to give, paint you a little picture here. Um, you're at your friend's house very, very late. And uh, you, uh, especially if you did this in the last three weeks, it's like the walk of shame because it's so cold. Very, very late. You put on your thick, heavy coat and you walk out to the street to find your parked car. This is the city of Philadelphia, right? You walk out to your car, and what happened? The car is gone. Now, this is Philly, so you think immediately that it's stolen, but then there's a sign. It's like a ransom note, right? The sign says what? Cars that are parked here are towed at the owner's expense, right? But it's very, very late. You can't go. You wait till the next morning. You speed out there. You're hoping that your car is there. You get there, right? And uh, you go to this agency. Now, uh, is it really an agency? Because you would think that when they charge you $250 to, to return your car, you would think that the place would look a little nicer than it does. They don't even have coffee. It's very, very cold in there, right? This guy shows up to the desk, and you, you say, well, I think, I think you might have my car, right? And the guy says, you know, hold on. And Charlie, it's always some guy named Charlie, right? He says, uh, yeah, we, we have your car. We have your car. But you're not, I'm not even going to let you see your car unless you show me the money, right? Unless you pay the ransom. So when you pay, you're not really paying a bill. You're not really paying a fee. You're not really paying a debt. It kind of. You're paying for freedom. That's what you're paying for. You're freeing your car from captivity. That's what it means to redeem something, right? It's a financial term. And the Apostle Paul is using that language to describe what this part of every spiritual blessing that you have. What am I actually being set free from? A lot of people say, wait a second, hold on. Freedom. I'm not in prison. I don't feel like I'm in prison. I feel very free, actually. Uh, I don't feel like I'm a a slave or held captive to anything, but the thing is you are. You are held slave. You are held captive. Moses said it. Jesus said it. Even Gandhi says it. Everyone says it. Captive to what? They say you're captive to your selfishness. You're a slave to your ego. That's why we need access. We need intimacy. We need to find status. We need to belong. We need presence. We need to feel that we're growing and maturing and and expanding and building. We need that. That's what we say. We crave it selfishly. It's why we're so fixated on other people. It's why we're so proud and we love to show off and we love to boast. It's why the world is also so broken, you see. How are you free from this? Now, you begin, look at Jesus. Jesus is the high king, and he came down. To do what? To take power away? No. Jesus came to relinquish power. To be served as king? In his kingliness, he came to serve, he said. To punish those who violated his law? No, he came to forgive those who violated his law. To build up his ego? No, he came to die 
He came to die. Why are we so insecure? Why are we so selfish in our lives? It's because deep inside, we feel like we came down. We feel like we came down. We feel like we lost something. We feel like we lost ourselves. And it's true because ever since the Garden of Eden, what do we have in the Garden of Eden? In the Garden of Eden, we walked with God in the cool of the day. We had access. We had intimacy with God. God established us as vice rulers to subdue the earth. That means that we had status. We had real status. We had real validation. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with us. That means we had a place. We had his presence. But when we chose to go against God in the garden, we said, God, I don't believe that you have my best interest in mind. That's insane if you think about it. We lost our minds. And because we lost our minds, we lost our hearts, we lost ourselves. And with that came sin and shame and suffering and insecurity and neediness and pride, the building up of our egos. So what do we do? What was our solution? We said, I got to get it back. I got to prove myself. I got to earn my way back. I, got, I need to be loved. I'm craving this love. I'm craving access and intimacy. I'm going to do whatever I can to become a son again. I need to be accomplished because I was a king. So I need to accomplish. I need to redeem myself. I need to pay the debt. I need to pay the ransom. I need to find myself again. You see that? And we don't always do it the selfish way. We're not ruthless in that way all the time. We do it by being good people because then we can make fun of the bad people. We do it by being moral because then we can say, oh, he's immoral. I'm so much better. We laugh at those people. We do it by being religious and we can say, all those people out there, they're not here doing this on a Sunday like me. We don't always do it the selfish way because that's our way back in. You get it? This is what's going to cover over my nakedness because Adam and Eve Upon sin, they realized there was shame in their nakedness. This, what am I going to do to cover over my nakedness? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover it over with a great resume, accomplishments, access, and love, and intimacy with other people. This is how I'm going to cover over myself. This is how I'm going to cover over my insecurity, building up my ego, building up my life, building, covering over my shame. If you've ever seen the movie Amadeus, one of my favorite movies, it was a um, old movie in the 80s, but it was actually, uh, it won the Oscar for Best Picture that year. Antonio Salieri, beautiful composer, composed tremendous, in real life, in real history, he did that. Salieri, he was a religious man. Every day, he says in the movie, every day I prayed to serve God through my music. Make me the greatest composer in the world so I can use my music to glorify and praise your name. But then, came Mozart. Mozart wasn't the kindest of people. Mozart was an infantile person. But Salieri was always overshadowed by Mozart. So what does he say? He prays to God. He says, from now on, I will block you because you chose to favor this smutty, infantile person. Something like that. He says, he says something like that. Now, this is how you know that if you're merely being good to get something out of God, when something goes wrong in the church, when something goes wrong with you in your life, you get angry. 
That's when the real you, because everything else was a cover, that's when the real you starts to come out. You get jealous. You get anxious. You start to grumble. When somebody else overshadows your goodness, when somebody else comes in, overshadows your skill, you get sad, you get mad, you get anxious. This happens at work. This happens in family. This happens everywhere. I mean, that's all. This is us this past week, right? You get angry, you get sad, you get jealous. Even in ministry, very, very important. Because if you're like that, you're not serving God. You're serving yourself. You can be a great father, you can be a tremendous mother, a wonderful doctor. You can be great at what you do. You can sacrifice for others and yet still be a slave. Because if you love anything more than God, that thing is your real functional God. And where God says rest, this God says you've got to work. When God says, I want you to be served, I want you to receive, this God says, I want you to give and I want you to pound and I want you to serve. When God says, I want you, when God says, I want you to surrender, this God says, I want you to build and take, you see? or you are nothing. So how are we going to be rescued from this kind of captivity? You begin, you got to look to Jesus. You got to look to Jesus, the high king. He came down not to take, but to give. Not to build his own self up, but to build his church, to build you up. You got to look to Jesus, the high king who came down, and two, it happens through his blood, right? We have redemption through his blood. If you just look to Jesus, just by itself, Jesus Christ as a mere example will destroy you. He's perfect. He's holy. Jesus Christ as your teacher, as a good example, will crush you because he's holy. He's never had, he's never had pride in him, you see? So to follow him as a mere example, it will absolutely destroy you. No hint of pride, no arrogance, pure holiness in Jesus. You have to go to Jesus as your substitute. What that means, it happens through his blood. You've got to look at the cross, and you have to see Jesus dying for you. You have to look at the cross and see Jesus shedding his blood for you. You have to look at the cross, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. You have to see him forgiving you. That's verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, why are we working so hard everywhere in our lives? Because we're trying to be perfect. We're trying to use that to get back in. But you can't. You see, you can't do that. When Adam and Eve, way back to the first book of the Bible, chapter 3, when Adam and Eve is driven out of the Garden of Eden, God placed an angel with a sword, a flaming sword. That means that you can't get back in. You have no more access. That's why we're always looking for access. You have no intimacy. That's why we're always looking for intimacy elsewhere. You don't have the status anymore. That's why we're trying so hard to build up our status. You see that? To get back into the garden the way we had it then, He says there's a sword. That means you will die trying to get back in on your own. You will shed blood trying to get back in on your own. That sword has to come down for you to get in. So what do you see when you see Jesus on the cross? When you see Jesus on the cross, the sword comes down, you see. 
Jesus took away the penalty for our sins. For my sins. You know what that means? We're all working to try to redeem ourselves. You know why we're doing that? It's because we've been looking for forgiveness. This forgiveness all of our lives. And the cross shows you there's the forgiveness that you need. There's the access. There's the intimacy and the status and the place and the presence that we've been looking for all of our lives. We're just looking in the wrong places. We're looking in caves, in dark places when Jesus Christ has freely given to us, offered to us on the cross. Jesus Christ naked on the cross. Why? So that we're covered. His blood Through his blood, his blood becomes our cover. Jesus Christ, forsaken on the cross. No more need to crave acceptance. We're accepted. Jesus Christ on the cross, he's groaning and laboring. Why? He's working on the cross. Why? So that we can rest. We can rest. No more need to prove ourselves. Jesus Christ says, I'm forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is I've lost intimacy, the only intimacy that we need. I've lost intimacy with the most beautiful person in the universe. Why? So that we can have access and intimacy and status, a place, God's presence in our lives. And when you see that you have been living your life captive to these desires and finding them in all the wrong places. Any place other than in the Lord is the wrong place. But when you see then Jesus Christ shedding his blood to redeem you, he's saying, you are held captive. I am now purchasing you. I am redeeming you. You are held captive. I am freeing you with my payment. It is finished. He says it on the cross. That is a transactional term, meaning the debt is now paid. The transaction has been made that will lift you from your captivity. Your sins are forgiven. The debt is paid. The price has been paid. You are free. No more debt. The chains are broken. They are gone. That means you can take that truth, take that reality, and to put place it into all the jail cells of your life, all the jail cells of your heart. Let the gospel run its course through every place in your heart where God has been replaced with something else. It will open the cells. It will open the cells, and you can proclaim freedom. You will be free. You can practice that freedom. It's going to take a lifetime. It begins as an event in your life, and then it takes a lifetime. You're just running through all the cells. That's what life is. Martin Luther said, all of life is what? Living a good life? No, that's not what Martin Luther said. He was wiser than that. You know, he's brilliant. They say he probably had over 200 IQ. Martin Luther said that life, all of life, is repentance. Running through all the jail cells of your heart, opening the door, saying, freedom! That is repentance. It is a victorious proclamation. It is not something you do with your tail between your legs. Jesus Christ has won. You've won. That's union. You get that? That, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ because of the gospel. How do you know you have it? How do you know you have it? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. That phrase comes up three times in this passage. Verse 6, verse 12, you see it in verse 14 as well. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, you can't just obey. 
You can't just believe, right? That's not what's going to get you. If that's you coming to church today, trying to obey and trying to believe, it means you don't believe. Your obedience, these works are dead. You're still just trying to acquire another boss. It's not going to work. Salvation is by grace, not by my doing. You can't just say that to yourself. That's not going to work either. That truth has to explode you. It's got to burst you into praise. Paul uses one, think about this. When you're excited about something, you go in and you start run-on sentences, right? When you're excited about something, you explain the entire thing. You take one deep breath and you just go. Paul uses one long run-on sentence. He can't stop. He's amazed by grace. And this guy is in jail during this time. He's in prison. What does that mean? Is the gospel amazing to you every day? Is it amazing? Is the gospel real to you? I mean, is Jesus beautiful to you? Is God glorious to you? C.S. Lewis says this. He says, by nature, we are designed to praise. We're designed to worship. That when something catches you, you adore it. You sing of it. That's what he says. After eight years of marriage, I'm about, about, a, about three weeks away from my eighth anniversary. After eight years of marriage, my wife, she never ceases never stops, not one day ceases to adore me. It's not because I'm adorable. It's just the, her character. It's the type of person that she is. She never ceases to just praise and, and heap adoration every day. Eight years have gone by. I thought after a couple years, things would slow down, right? After eight years, it, it's more. <laughs> it gets more. She ain't going to slow down right? After eight years of marriage, and the reason why, it's because lovers, they don't just do that to compliment you, to build up your self-esteem. They don't do that. C.S. Lewis says, our delight is not complete until it is expressed. Our delight our true adoration, our love is not complete until it is expressed. When you're captivated by something that is beautiful to you, you will sing of it. You will praise it. When you see a great movie, what do you do? You gotta see it. When you hear a good song, you say, have you heard this song? By nature, we are designed to share, to express, to praise, to worship. Our delight, when you eat at a good restaurant and you eat a good meal, what do you do? You gotta go here. Our delight is not complete until it is expressed. Why is God's grace? Why is Paul doing this over and over? Why is God's grace so glorious? Because there is nothing more beautiful than someone giving their life to you because they love you. There's nothing more beautiful than someone giving up their lives for you because of their love for you. Remember Harry Potter? Harry Potter's mother gives her life for Harry Potter. That's the stronger magic. It's why Voldemort, right? Lord Voldemort can't touch him because it's a sacrificial love. Professor Dumbledore, he says it. 
right? Albus Dumbledore says, your mother died to save you. If there's one thing that Voldemort cannot understand, it's love. He didn't realize that love, as powerful as your mother's is for you, leaves its own mark. You know, Harry Potter had a mark, right? It leaves its own mark. He says, that will give some protection forever. It's in your very skin. Jesus says it another way. He says, greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now think about it. If Albus Dumbledore, the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ, and I are telling you this, it's got to be true, right? It's got to be true. Dumbledore is enough for some of you, right? There's no greater beauty than that. Movies, artists, writers, they all know that because in our design, we praise things that are beautiful and nothing is more beautiful than the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, who came down for you to give up eternal glory for you. He gave up the love of the Father for you so that you would have that glory. You would have that love that has to capture you. If that captivates you, it will relinquish, it will open up all the jail cells and you will now be held prisoner to God's love that will shape you. Look to the cross, Jesus Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm forsaken. I've lost access. I've lost intimacy. I've lost the love of the Father. That means I lost status. I've lost my place as the king, status. I'm suffering the penalty of the wrath of God for these, my, the people I love. I've lost the presence of God disowned on the cross. My God, my God. The only time in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't refer to God as his Father. Why? So that we could be sons adopted. Held captive to death. Why? To pay the price so that we could be redeemed through his blood. Set free from the power of sin. The sword came down on Jesus. We gained access. Those jail cells opened. We're set free. That means right now, you may have been skeptic all your life. Today, if that moves you, if that captivates you, if that grabs you, if you're taken by this, you are free. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be dramatic. You may not even remember the actual day you came to believe. You believe. This is not a story for someone else. This is a story for you. And when it captures you, it will shape you. Look at the beauty of Jesus. Look at the glory of Jesus. We're going to have an opportunity to adore him and respond in praise. Let's pray.